morning, Summit Church. <clears throat> my, again, my name is Adam, and I'm really thankful to be with you guys this morning. Um, as was said, I've been an intern here for about six months now. My wife, Katie, and I have been attending and um, members for almost three years now, which doesn't really seem possible. For comparison's sake, for those of you who might be newer here, uh, three years ago, we only had one service, which was at night, because obviously we're cool like that. Back then, we had maybe like 10 kids. Now, if you go up to Summit Kids, there's like 10,000, because here at the Summit, we take the command to be fruitful and multiply very seriously. (laughs) And believe it or not, back then, Andy and Brian couldn't even grow facial hair. And look at them now. Their Their beards are breathtaking. So that alone should show you just how much has changed, just how much God has been blessing us here at the Summit over the last few years. Katie and I have also been immensely blessed um, over this last year. Um, We welcomed our first child uh, to our family in February. Thank you. And his name's Ellis. He is wonderful. Um, He is five months old now. And I don't know if this is normal for new parents, but to us, he already feels like he's five years old. It's insane how much a child grows and develops so quickly. About a week ago, he got his first tooth which was mind-boggling because we did not expect that to happen so quickly. Uh, But now I'm just thinking about what kind of steak am I going to feed him first? What kind of barbecues are we going to have? I can't wait to go hunting at Costco with him. I think that's every father's dream. At least that's mine. So that's a little about my family, some random things about my family for those of you who don't know me. Uh, We love this church. We love serving this church. And over the past few years, Katie and I have been tremendously served by this church, loved, cared for in in so many ways, and in a lot of difficult areas of our lives as well. And so really, our our passion is that each and every person who gathers with us, whether you're here for just a few days or a few years, that each and every one of you would also feel that same love, compassion, that you would feel cared for and known here at the summit. And that's why this text we're about to walk through is so important confronting discrimination both within and outside of the church is is something that's been heavy on mine and Katie's heart over the last few years. And so while I'm, I feel really honored to be able to speak on this subject, my hope is, is really that we would hear God's heart on this matter. And I know that sounds probably really cliche, but man, do I believe that. I want that for us as my hope and prayer that we would be, we would hear from God's word and we would be shaped in such a way that we would reflect his heart for other people. So with that said, I want to jump jump in with a really difficult truth that God has been teaching me and revealing to me lately, and that's that we as humans, as, as sinful human beings, we have such a propensity to seek after our own well-being and self-exaltation. We'll go to such great and even terrible lengths for that Um, And then often we trample over others in the process. Just a few weeks ago, uh, Katie and I were watching a fairly new movie called The Wizard of Lies with uh, Robert De Niro. For those of you unfamiliar with the film, the story is all about Bernie Madoff and the events um, surrounding his Ponzi investment scheme from back in 2008. And it's truly a tragic story. I, I remember hearing about the events in the news but actually watching things unfold on TV, regardless of how it might have been exaggerated, it was truly painful. He had this man with a beautiful family, with an amazing job, 
yet he was so desirous of his own self-worth, self-exaltation, um, for money and for power, that he would really disregard the welfare of, I don't even know how many thousands of people, um, not even really thinking about how it affect his family um, in, in the long run. And in the end, Madoff stole billions upon billions of dollars, robbing people of their entire retirement investments, leaving them with nothing, um, and ultimately destroying his family. And even after the death of his two sons, even after a broken marriage, the film still depicts Madoff in the end not really able to own up to his mistakes, still partially blaming the people he robbed for their guilt in, in part in his scheme. And while we should be shocked by his refusal to take responsibility for his actions, this story should also really reveal to us, speak volumes, and, and cause us to take pause at just how easy it can be to hurt others in pursuit of our own self-worth, of love, of power, of even just protecting ourselves. My guess, though, is that none of you here probably feel like Bernie Madoff, stealing billions of dollars and ruining lives in the process. But self-protection, self-worth, and from that discrimination can sneak into our lives much easier and simpler than that. In my job, I work as an enrollment counselor for a university. And talking to so many students, it can be so easy for me to make judgments about people and their ability to go back to school simply by the sound of their voices. And without a second's thought, I go on to help them by assuming that this isn't going to happen for them. And why? Ultimately, I'm protecting my time, my energy. And I'm saying that, that it's more valuable than theirs. So in this text, James is about to show us what discrimination is and why it's so evil. This text is meant to confront our sin and our discrimination that we feel like builds us up. And so before we move forward, I want to pray together. I want to humbly ask that God would reveal to us this sin, this brokenness, really show us as well how it can even subtly be influencing our lives. And from that, the hope is that we would really see others through the lens of the gospel and through the way that God sees them. So please pray with me. Father, ultimately, we pray for just that. We pray to see through your eyes. We, we are so thankful for your love, but often we, we, take, we take it for granted. It is, it is so easy to protect ourselves, to be so desirous of, of taking care of number one, um, and in the midst of that, to truly hurt people, to run over people in the process. So God, we pray that we would be people of your word, of your truth. Even the word discrimination can, can cause us to cringe and tighten up, to get defensive. And I pray that you would lift those barriers that guard from us today, that we would hear your truth, that we would be receptive of your truth, of this brokenness, that, that isn't beyond us or beyond the church, and that we would humbly ask that you would reveal it to us, that we would hate it, that we would love you and seek you and seek what you desire from us through this text in James. And we pray all these things in your precious name, amen.
So what is discrimination in James? Starting in verse 1, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If James chapter 1 ends with a definition of pure religion, chapter 2 begins by confronting its antithesis, its opposite. Chapter 1 ends by saying that you cannot have true faith without the byproduct of mercy and holiness. And if the opposite is true in the body of Christ, it must be confronted. But what exactly is James confronting? And what exactly does he mean by partiality? Quite literally, James is telling his audience, his readers, not to make judgments about people based on any external appearances. And he doesn't limit himself to just one offense, but the original word he uses for partiality declares that any act, any act that discriminates based on external matters is in direct contradiction to our Lord and to his kingdom. If you recall two weeks ago, Josh told us that James is writing this letter to us to reveal what he believes is vital to following Christ. So after summarizing his main themes in chapter one, after calling us to be doers of the word, not only hearers, and then after directing us to remain unstained from the world, right away in chapter two, James begins by confronting the opposite, confronting discrimination. And this should speak volumes to us. It's no simple request as if to say, it would be really nice if you treated every person with equal value, weight, honor, and dignity, but rather it is an imperative to true faith in the Lord of glory. Ultimately, discrimination is the exact opposite of the gospel we claim to believe. If God in his mercy is loving and redeeming people based not on socioeconomic standing, not on race or gender or any external judgment. He expects, he commands, and he calls his people to love people in exactly the same way. I have the pleasure of leading our greeting team here. And for those on the team, um, those that are on the team know that it is our hope, our desire, that every single person that walks through those doors would feel loved and welcomed here. Our hope is that we would communicate that this is a family that you can belong to. But if I'm out there making distinctions about who I greet and how I greet them for any reason, my actions are in direct contradiction to the words that I claim to believe are true. Throughout the scriptures, God declares that he's making everything right through his Messiah. And in the end, his one kingdom, his one church will be filled with people from across this globe, not because of who they are, but because of his love. So if I act counter to that, if my life continually reflects the opposite of that, how can I say that I have faith in that God? Discrimination of any kind is believing something other than the gospel. It's declaring that what God says is right and true of his creation is a lie. And then instead, I decide what's right and true of each person. So James confronts this with an example. Many believe it to be a hypothetical situation, but something that's rooted in the communities that he's writing to. So it's, it's one form of partiality, one form of many. He says in, in verse 2, For if a man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, 
And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down on my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse four is what we call a leading question. The answer is already given. If you act in this way, you have become judges whose thinking is evil. The world might exalt the rich while neglecting and shaming the poor, but not so in the kingdom of God or by its citizens. To do so is evil, plain and simple. However, we don't always act like this is clear and obvious truth, do we? So we must further ask ourselves, why are we to believe that partiality and discrimination is evil? Last week, Andy talked about internal change affecting external change. And, and this really remains true even when something seems so indisputably evil. It seems that in our culture today, the belief is that if we just keep talking enough about love and unity, things are just going to change and get better. Just keep talking, just keep talking. But we can't beat hate and violence with fuzzy sentimentality. It must be confronted. Discrimination must be confronted with truth. Truth that shapes and reorients our inner core beliefs in order, in order to see lasting change in our actions. So why then are we to believe that discrimination is evil? James gives two main answers. My hope is to, to cover them clearly. First, discrimination honor, dishonors those that God loves and honors ourselves instead. Again, it, it dishonors those that God loves and it honors ourselves instead. Verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? How could we as followers of Christ ever justify discriminating the very people that God has chosen. This passage isn't meant to say that God has chosen the poor alone because God does, doesn't discriminate himself. But rather the, the sheer volume of passages throughout the word of God that we can refer back to, make it clear that God cares for the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, the neglected, and he delights in pouring out his grace on those that the world has cast aside. Remember that right before discussing discrimination, he says that pure religion is caring for the orphan and the widow. God desires to, to rescue all that would return to him. And he's continually turning the world's expectations upside down. A worldly king might desire those that are monetarily rich. A worldly kingdom might seek after those that have power and influence might seek after those that can bring more fame and status to the king. But this isn't our king. And this isn't the kingdom that we are receiving. Our king declares that those who love him are not only his, but they are rich in faith. Meaning that by his standards, they may lack everything the world values. But they are abundantly more rich than we can ever imagine and the world is abundantly more bankrupt. They've been made sons and daughters of the king. 
So how then can we as believers ever think to discriminate an evil judgment against those that our God, the good judge, has promised his kingdom to? I also think we could all agree that our world is quite broken. We know that because God's word tells us that. We know that also from personal experience. Watch the news for any number of minutes and you'll, you'll see just how corruptly we treat one another. So we might halfway expect that as we interact with people, they're going to hate us and love themselves. But for those who have been rescued by God, discrimination makes absolutely no sense. We are loved by the one, the only one who has the right to judge us as condemned, but then we judge others as condemned with evil intentions, with self-serving thought. This should scream contradiction. James's example of discrimination is meant to sound absurd and obvious, but it is so necessary for us to hear, for me to hear, because it's all too easy for me to agree with James's assessment here, but then go back to my life and ignore my neighbor based on the color of their skin or because the clothes they wear makes me nervous. Or maybe I lock my doors because in my own judgment, that person's a threat to me when all they've done is not look and act like me. Or maybe instead of listening to the cries of those who are less privileged than me, I try to ignore it all away because I'm too concerned about what it might cost me to care. Am I going to lose friends that make me look better? Am I going to misalign myself from the political party that I deem so important and valuable? What is it going to cost me? Money, time. What is it going to cost me to love my neighbor as myself? Because it will cost us something. But God has called us to a greater love. And he confronts this sin that we might reflect his love and care and concern for others the way that he does. So this leads to a second reason discrimination is evil. And it's because discrimination not only dishonors the people God loves, but it dishonors the very person of God himself. Verse 8 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point and has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Breaking the law of God can be far different than breaking the law of the land. For instance, if I was caught speeding, I would be liable to pay the offenses of that one offense. I'm not made out to be anti-government. I'm not made out to be an enemy of the state. I've broken one law, not all of them. When it comes to the law of God, we're meant not to see a bunch of individual rules or good beliefs to follow, a set of expectations to follow, but in them, we're meant to see the very character of who God is and what he is like. We're meant to see God. That's why Jesus can summarize the law in Matthew 22 by saying, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the, the great and first commandment, and second is like it. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Loving God and loving our neighbor is more than just following the law. It's following and reflecting the very lawgiver himself. Therefore, discrimination of any kind rejects God. It does not reflect him. For centuries, brilliant thinkers and philosophers have tried to come up with reasons why we as a world should have a strong social ethic and morality. For instance, Plato and then many others after him said that the highest aim of thinking and action should be the well-being and happiness of others. And that sounds really nice, doesn't it? If every single person centered their thoughts and their actions on what's best for human flourishing, everything would be made better. Societies would heal. Things would change. Well, as great as an idea as that sounds, the issue ultimately comes back to us. Who determines what is best for human flourishing? You? Me? Even with my best intentions, my perspective is so limited And even if my sin doesn't cause me to turn back and pursue my own flourishing, how am I to have a clue what's best for human flourishing? There's been so much evil that's been done in the name of human flourishing and doing what's best for mankind. But this is one of the ways in which Christianity drastically differs from every other, for the majority of every other worldview and philosophy, particularly in terms of how we understand ethics. There's nothing subjective about a Christian view of morality or justice. And none of it depends on what I or you or we think is best. We love because God first loved us. We see murder and hatred is evil because we were made by a good and gracious God who rather than condemning and destroying us on our sin, sent his son who instead himself was murdered and hated by the world. And he died that we might have life and eternity to love him and love one another perfectly. And while this perfection doesn't come until later, we are called and commanded here and now to love and reflect this good and gracious God. Unlike the rest of the world, The church has definite and a concrete answer why why we should stand up for the poor, the marginalized, the broken, the outcast, the other, and to fight for their equality, dignity, value, and worth. And it's not because someone else said it's a good idea, but it's because we were made by a, a good God in his image, and we were made, therefore, with dignity, value, worth, and no one can strip that from us or any person. We of all people, children of God, we must reflect his mercy, his compassion, his love, his goodness. The rest of the world may sometimes love, but they cannot reflect God in this way. We were called, we were rescued, we were restored to bear this image I was reminded of this recently uh, by a podcast titled Truth's Table. It consists of three brilliant women who weekly discuss the Christian faith, the church, 
world and, and national events, among other things. And honestly, I, I believe everyone can profit from them. They, they bless my soul, they lead to my sanctification, and, and they lead me in tears every single time. They're incredible, and they deserve that plug. And a few weeks ago, in memory of those that lost their lives in the church in Charleston two years ago, and in memory of, of many other African Americans who have been unjustly killed, they were discussing the Christian response to the racial tension and discrimination that we've seen in our country. And I won't explain the whole podcast, but something that was said really just implanted in my heart and mind, and gosh, my, my hope and prayer is that it never leaves me. One of the three hosts said that in regards to discrimination, she should never be surprised when someone outside of the household of faith doesn't have her back. But what corruption has overtaken us when any person, regardless of status, of gender, of race, of sexual orientation, of anything, does not feel safe among God's people? And if she is unwelcome in that place, that community, and if those people aren't confronting and condemning discrimination, she goes on to wonder, is that place actually the household of God? I want to say that again. If she is unwelcome in that place, the church, and if we aren't standing up against discrimination and hate, is that place the household of God? It's a powerful question. And James is confronting us with the same question, the same issue. And his answer is clear. Discrimination cannot exist among God's people. We cannot reflect him while we hate our neighbors and our brothers and sisters. And that includes ignoring their suffering. So where do we go from here? James ends his discuss discussion on discrimination with both a warning and an encouragement. He says in verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In the last days when Christ returns to set everything right, we will be judged by our King. But yet, while none of us deserve mercy, God poured out his grace by sending his son who lived and died on our behalf. So those who know him, who love him, who follow him, will be judged based on the work of Christ, not our own work. So speak and so act as those who are not only hearers but doers of the word of God, those who have actually truly received this salvation. James' letter goes to great lengths to make it clear. Internal realities are followed by external realities. Faith is followed by action. The love of the Father is followed by loving him and loving others. Those who show no mercy reveal that they have not understood or not received the mercy of God. And this is a really difficult judgment, a warning to stomach. Who doesn't feel unmerciful, unloving, broken, selfish, and self-serving at least some of the time? 
But this warning isn't meant to crush us under the weight of guilt and despair. Rather, it's meant to point us to the cross, to the one who loves perfectly and the one who is shaping us to reflect this good and loving God. And so James ends with this encouragement, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs when a a broken person can come into the community of God and receive compassion instead of rejection. Mercy triumphs when a husband loves his wife and his children and serves them and doesn't just use them for his own status. Mercy triumphs when we remember the poor and those in prison rather than abandoning them. Mercy triumphs when followers of Christ stand up against racism, discrimination, and hate rather than ignoring it. Over the past few years, we've witnessed some horrendous crimes, crimes of discrimination, of hate in our country and around the world. It isn't new because sin is cyclical and it rears its ugly head time and time again and it will continue to do so until our Father wipes it out forever and he will. He promises us that he will. But until that time, we are called, those who know him, those who love him, we are called to stand against injustice, not to sit on the sidelines Mercy triumphed over judgment in the cross. And mercy will continue to triumph when we love our neighbors as our very selves. So let's pray and let's ask God to do this in us and for us. Father, Your salvation, your love should leave us speechless, should leave us humble and broken that you would redeem a sinful and rebellious people. But so often, my life does not reflect that. It's so easy to forget the gospel and love myself. God, we pray that as as you through your word confront us of sin, confront us of brokenness, that we would receive your word humbly. God, that you would do this for us because we, we cannot love our brothers, our sisters, and our neighbors without you. It's impossible. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your salvation to shape and transform us in such a way that we would be a community of people that would reflect to this broken world what it means, why we should love one another, why we should care for one another as our very selves. Would you, God, do this in us and for us today and every day for the rest of our lives, for the rest of this broken world until you come and set everything right. Do this for us. We ask, we plead, and we pray. And we pray all these things in the name of the only one who can do it for us. In Jesus' name, amen.